Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Tech companies take your personal data and then sell the information to the highest bidder. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Go to expressvpn.com gold to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Welcome, everybody, to the first podcast of 2023. And if today is any indication of how the markets are going to trade during 2023, we are in for a lot of volatility. But I think today was very telling as to how the rest of the year is likely to play out. First of all, the Dow Jones early in the morning was up better than 200 points before selling off intraday to down over 300 points before closing down just 11 points, so almost unchanged. But the other broader indexes were decisively weaker. The S&P surrendered early morning gains to close down 0.4 of a percent. Russell 2000 surrendered those gains and closed down six-tenths of 1%. And the big loser on the day, the NASDAQ, closing down 0.8% after early morning rally. And I think this pretty much is setting the tone for the way the stock market is going to play out in 2023. I think it's going to be another weak year for stocks, in particular for the stocks in the NASDAQ. In fact, take a look at some of the big names from 2022 and, in fact, from years past, and look at what happened to those stocks today. Apple Computer, one of the most highly owned stocks in the country, the second A in FANG, was down 3.85% on the day, hitting a new 52-week low. Apple is now down by 32% since its high in January of 2022. Also look at Tesla, 
It's not a FANG stock, but it was probably the first unofficial meme stock. A lot of people own Tesla. That stock was clobbered by 12.5% today, hitting a new 52-week low. It's now down 73% from its record high set in January of 2022. The market hit its highs last year in January, and it was downhill from there. And I think you're going to see the same thing again in 2023. The highs of the year are likely to be made in January. In fact, we may have already made the highs intraday today. We'll see. But I think there's a lot of downside risk in this market. I think the only chance the market has of recovering at some point during the year would be in the aftermath of a full-on Fed pivot. And I'm talking back to quantitative easing, because as long as the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, even if it stops hiking rates, if it simply leaves them alone, I don't think that's going to be enough to stop the stock market from falling. In fact, if you listen to all the coverage on CNBC this morning, which I did, as the market opened for trading in a brand new year, most of the people were saying that this was likely to be a up year. And why? Because last year was a big down year. In fact, it was one of the worst years ever. I'll get into that in a moment. But because the market was so weak in 2022, historically, when you have a down year, it's followed by an up year. So everybody just assumes that history is going to repeat and they have absolutely no conception of why the situation is very different now than it was following prior down years. First of all, yes, the stock market was down big in 2022. In fact, the S&P had its biggest annual decline since 2008. But it's not cheap. If you look at the PE of the S&P, even after a near 20% decline in 2022, it's still trading at around 20 times earnings. That's not cheap. In fact, that is expensive for stocks. If you look historically at stock market valuations before the 2000 stock market bubble, before Alan Greenspan was there artificially suppressing interest rates and blowing bubble after bubble, with each successive Fed chairman adding more pages to the same playbook, the average PE on stocks was maybe about 15 or 16 times earnings. When stocks went below 10 times earnings, that's when they were cheap. When they rose above 20 times earnings, which they did occasionally, they were expensive. That's where we are now. Now, yes, we did maintain high PEs with 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. But if you're looking at that in the rearview mirror with the Fed hiking rates and fighting inflation, we should go back to a normal PE. We shouldn't be staying at these absurdly high valuations that were a function of monetary policy that at least for now, no longer exists. But what's even more important than the historic PE is the fact that the E, earnings, is inflated and is going to come down. U.S. companies are not going to be able to maintain current earnings because those earnings were manufactured in an era of artificially low interest rates. Well, the ability of corporations to manufacture those earnings is gone. And in fact, as corporate debt matures and has to be rolled over at higher and higher rates, that's going to diminish corporate earnings because the interest expense, 
is going to go up. And because so many companies are spending so much money on interest for money they borrowed in the past, they have less money to spend now. And so that also diminishes corporate earnings because they can't spend money buying the goods and services of other corporations. And consumers are going to be in the same bind. A lot of individual consumers of corporate goods and services are going to be spending a lot more interest on their own debts or paying the higher price for food, energy, insurance, health care, taxes. There's not going to be money left over for discretionary spending, which makes up the lion's share of corporate earnings. And so not only are stocks not cheap, despite this big drop, but the earnings are about to fall through the floor, meaning stocks are even more expensive than they appear. So if we had a big down year, and as a result of a big down year, stocks were fairly valued or they were cheap, well, then maybe we'd have a rebound in the following year. But if stocks remain expensive despite a big decline, well, forget about what happened historically. I think it's far more likely that expensive stocks will continue to fall rather than rise, especially when you look at the bigger picture, which is interest rates have just risen sharply and are likely to keep rising. We have a huge inflation problem that we didn't have in other years where we had the big drop and then we had a recovery. The Fed is way behind the curve fighting an inflation problem that is going to get bigger. And it's not just the stock market that's having problems. It's the bond market. In fact, the S&P 500 had the seventh worst year ever. The total return was minus 18.1% when you include the dividends. But the bond market had the worst year ever. Ten-year treasuries dropped 16%. There's never been a year where treasury bonds have fallen by 16%. And in fact, if you look at the return on the 60-40 portfolio, it was down 16.9% on the year. That is the third worst year ever for the 60-40 portfolio. And in fact, the only two years where investors in a 60-40 portfolio did worse than they did in 2022 was 1931 and 1937. Now, what those two years have in common is they fell during the Great Depression. So outside of the Great Depression, We've never had a year where investors have done so poorly on stocks and bonds. But despite the fact that we've had such a big fall in 10-year treasuries, 10-year treasury bonds remain historically expensive. As I am recording this podcast earlier today, the yield on a 10-year treasury closed at 3.8%. That is a very low yield, which means a very high price for treasury bonds especially when you're looking at 7 or 8% inflation. So we have a 10-year treasury with a real yield of around negative 4%. And of course, the real yield is actually lower than that if you had an accurate CPI, which we don't. But even using the government's rig CPI, which dramatically understates the effect inflation has on prices, you still have a negative 4% real yield on bonds. Bonds are expensive. And so bonds are likely to have another down year in 2023. And if bonds are going to have a down year in 2023, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the stock market to also have a down year 
2023. So all these analysts that are coming out and saying, well, historically, bad years are followed by good years have no idea what they're talking about because they're not looking at all the other historic precedents that are being broken right now based on the valuations in the stock and bond market and how weak the economy is, how weak earnings are. And in fact, we're likely to start the year in a recession. In fact, I think we were in recession in 2022, but nobody wants to acknowledge that. But just about everybody who is in denial of the 2022 recession expects a recession in 2023, yet they still expect the stock market to do well, even though we're going to be in recession. Why? Well, first, everybody expects the recession to be very mild and very shallow, and that's where they're wrong. They're right about the recession, but they're wrong about the severity and the depth. But also, one of the reasons that so many people are confident that the recession is going to be short and shallow is because they also expect the Fed to come to the rescue by going back to QE and by reversing the rate hikes with rate cuts. But even if it does that, it's not going to be a good year for U.S. stocks. It may be a good year for some U.S. stocks, but not the broader averages, in particular the NASDAQ, because these tech stocks are going a lot lower even if the Fed comes to the rescue because it won't be able to rescue these stocks because inflation is not going to come down. In fact, when it tries to rescue the market, an already high inflation rate is going to move even higher, and that is going to hurt these high multiple tech stocks or these earningless companies. And we're going to continue to see the momentum shifting from those type of momentum stocks into value-oriented dividend-paying stocks. And in fact, if you look at the returns in 2022, I mentioned that the S&P was down 18.1%. The Dow was only down 9%. Why was that? Well, because you have more value-oriented stocks in the Dow. The Russell 2000 down 21%. Why was the Russell 2000 down more than the S&P? Well, because you have fewer value names there than in the S&P. And the index that was down the most was the NASDAQ. It was down 33%. And that's because you have that index dominated by these growth names. And those same growth names are overpriced now. And they're going to continue to fall in an environment of high inflation. And in fact, if you look at the more riskier subset of the NASDAQ, the real risky stocks, like the ones that Kathy Wood owns in the ARK Innovation ETF, that ETF was down 67% in 2022, and it closed the year 80% below its 2021 high. And even though it was down that much, and it was down again today, it was down 2.5% on the first day of trading of 2023, it's still overpriced because so many of the stocks there are overpriced. And by the way, in 2022, the ARK Innovation Fund had net inflows. Investors kept putting money into the fund despite the fact that it was down 67% on the year. So nobody threw in the towel. Nobody took their chips off the table and left. That is a negative sign because if you're looking for capitulation, there was none. Investors kept averaging down in this fund. I think in 2023, you're going to get that capitulation. You're going to see net redemptions out of this fund. And now Kathy Wood is going to have to sell 
all these stocks because she's been a buyer of these stocks, even though they've been clobbered and most of her stocks are at 52-week lows. That decline came despite the fact that she's been a steady buyer all last year. So when she turns into a seller, having been the biggest buyer, look out below, a lot of these stocks are going to collapse from here. Nothing that you do online is private. In fact, if you're taking advantage of social media and you're not paying anything to use the service, you're not the customer, you're the product. Giant tech companies enrich themselves by taking your personal information and selling it to the highest bidder. They grab your web history, emails, metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you, and then they sell that to the highest bidder. Companies aren't just selling products anymore, they're selling you. In fact, you have become the product. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. Think about all the websites you visit. Facebook, Twitter, Google, everything you do and say online is tracked by giant tech companies. Using your public IP address, they can uniquely match your activity and know your location. ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. ExpressVPN also encrypts all your data so it is protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So if you believe that your internet data belongs to you and can't be shared without your authorization, then ExpressVPN is the answer. There are other benefits too. If you're a football fan like I am, often the game that you want to watch is not available in your location. But all I have to do is change my location using my ExpressVPN to one of the cities where the team that I want to watch is playing, and I get free access to the game I want to see. So protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold to get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash gold to learn more. Even worse than the ARK ETF was the performance of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is also one of the holdings in the ARK ETF. But the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust finished the year down 76%. That is an enormous decline, especially if you consider that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was marketed as an alternative to gold, as a safe haven, as a store of value. In fact, I did a debate about three years ago in 2019 with Barry Silbert, the CEO of Digital Currency Group, the owner of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, right when that campaign first launched. When the debate began at the SALT conference, they started the debate by playing the drop gold commercial. And the whole idea was that if you own gold as an inflation hedge, as a safe haven or store of value, you should drop gold because you should buy Bitcoin instead. But not just Bitcoin, you should buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. That was better than owning gold. Well, gold was actually flat on the year, maybe down a few bucks. It's hard to say. Silver was actually up about two and a half percent on the year. But being flat is a whole lot better than being down 76%. In fact, I was listening on CNBC this morning to some people talking about Bitcoin. And this woman was talking about it. And she still thought that Bitcoin had some more downside because she was negative on risk assets. 
But then she said she thought Bitcoin would find a bottom when other risk assets bottomed out. And then later in the year, she was expecting a rally in risk assets due to the end of rate hikes and maybe even some rate cuts and a return to QE. And so she thought that that would engender a risk on appetite and then Bitcoin would rally with all the other risk on stocks. And the point I want to make here is if more and more people have now accepted that Bitcoin is a risk asset, that it is not a safe haven, it is not digital gold. And by the way, Bitcoin has been reinvented every time it failed because initially the purpose of Bitcoin was to be a currency. It was a digital currency. People were going to use it to buy coffee instead of dollars. Well, that didn't really work out very well. So they reinvented it as digital gold because they said, hey, nobody uses gold to buy coffee either, but they use it as a store of value. And so that's what Bitcoin is going to be. It's going to be digital gold, except that didn't work out because it really had no correlation to gold. And then for a while, they reinvented it as a non-correlated asset. Remember that? People were saying, well, the value of Bitcoin is you have no idea what it's going to do. It can go up, it can go down. It has no relationship to any other asset. And so therefore, it could be a valuable addition to your portfolio. Just it'll smooth out the volatility because it might go up when other things are going down. Except then all of a sudden, people realize that it was highly correlated with risk assets and therefore provided no diversification whatsoever. It just took a risky portfolio and goosed it and made it even riskier. And so then Bitcoin became a risk asset, which is what it is now. But here's the problem. If Bitcoin is a risk asset, then what the hell is the value proposition of Bitcoin? I mean, who needs another risk asset? We got plenty of risk assets to choose from. Why Bitcoin? In fact, most risk assets have a much better risk reward proposition than Bitcoin. I mean, first of all, what makes a risk asset versus a non-risk conservative asset? Well, a bond is generally considered conservative. Why? Because your returns are known. You loan a company money and they pay you back all the money you loan them plus a fixed interest rate. Maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 8%, depending on the credit quality of the company. And also it depends on the anticipated inflation rate that the lender expects because that's going to be built in to the yield curve. So the bond is considered safe because your returns are known. Now, is there some risk? Yes, you could be wrong and inflation could be higher than you think, or maybe the company isn't as solvent as you think and they go under and so you might lose. But if the company does go bankrupt as a bondholder, you have the senior claim on the company's assets. So when the company sells off all the assets, even if there isn't enough to make the bondholders whole, Maybe they'll get 90 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar. You're not going to get wiped out. It's the common stockholders that get wiped out. That's why the common stockholders, that's a risky investment when you buy common stock. Now, certain stocks are riskier than others. When you pay a higher PE, you accept a lower dividend yield because more can go wrong. And what makes stocks risky as opposed to bonds is with bonds, you know what the return is going to be. You have no idea what the return on stocks are going to be because you don't know what the company is going to earn. And you don't know what other problems may come up that may cause that company to lose a lot of value. So that is risky. Now, obviously, you could mitigate the risk in the stock market by buying stocks at lower PEs 
stocks that don't have a lot of debt, that have long histories of paying dividends, that have been in business for a long time. So not all stocks are equal. Some are a lot riskier than others, but those are risk assets because the return is unknown. You're taking a risk. You're, you're betting that this stock is going to do well, that its earnings are going to grow. But if you're wrong, you could lose. But if you're right, you can make a much better return than just clipping a coupon on a bond. Now, what about Bitcoin? Bitcoin has no return at all. I mean, you're pretty much certain what your return is. It's zero because Bitcoin doesn't pay interest. It doesn't pay dividends. It doesn't pay rent. It pays nothing. So it is pure risk, but really nothing can happen. I mean, I guess the gamble that everybody is making on Bitcoin is that it'll become a safe haven asset in the future. It's not a safe haven asset now, but at some point it's going to magically transform itself from a high risk asset to an ultra low risk safe asset. Now, I don't really see how it could possibly make that transition. I don't even think it's possible for it to happen. And so what is the point of Bitcoin? If it's just a risk asset, when it was an alternative to gold, okay, you could buy gold or you could buy digital gold, gold 2.0. They were arguing that Bitcoin was better than gold. But can you argue that Bitcoin is better than all these stocks in the NASDAQ, each and every one? If you want a risk asset, why not bet on one of these companies that could do really well? Or there's 20,000, 21,000 other cryptocurrencies. They're all risk assets. So who's to say Bitcoin is the best? Because if it's no longer digital gold, if it's just a risk asset, then how is it different than the 21,000 other risk assets that we used to call cryptocurrencies? But now they're just crypto. We kind of dropped the word currency because whenever I hear anybody talking about cryptocurrencies, they don't even use the word currency anymore. It's just crypto. Like crypto what? Like there's any value there? There is no value there. So Bitcoin failed as a currency. Then it failed as digital gold. Then it failed as a non-correlated asset. I don't expect it to have any better luck as a risk asset. It's not going to succeed as a risk asset either. It's going to fail again. But one of the things I think was interesting, too, about 2022 is just like none of the diehards in the Kathy Wood Ark Innovation Fund, they didn't throw in the towel. They didn't give up. They still worship their Messiah. The same thing in crypto. There is very little nervousness. I mean, people are upset that you know they've lost a lot, but they haven't given up. They still expect Bitcoin to make new highs. I mean, any day now, it's going to be a moonshot. So we haven't had any capitulation really in Bitcoin. Now, some people have lost a lot of money because they had their crypto in an exchange that went bankrupt. And so they lost all their money that way, but they didn't sell out. And so I think that again is going to happen in 2023. I think you're going to see a big capitulation among the HODL gang. You're going to see a lot of people selling Bitcoin. And that's why I think the downside is significant, much below 10,000, probably even below 5,000. I don't think Bitcoin is going to zero out in 2023. I do expect there's going to be some people buying on that huge dip as they always have. It's just going to be another big dip. But I think eventually that's where Bitcoin is headed. And I think that's going to be ironic because the year that Bitcoin is really going to break down which I believe is 2023, not 2022, that's when I think gold is really going to shine. In fact, if today is any indication of how the year is going to go for gold, it was a good one. Gold was up about $15 on the close, although when the stock market was up a couple of hundred, gold was up about $25. In fact, its intraday high 
was just over $1,850 an ounce. That was a new six-month high, and it settled the day just below $1,840 an ounce. So gold sold off along with the stock market, but it held on to a bigger gain. And the same thing with gold stocks. They were up 4.5% or so when gold was up 25 bucks, but by the close, with gold up just 15 bucks, the GDX was up 3.5% and the GDXJ was up 3.3%. So solid up days for gold stocks. By the way, gold stocks had negative years in 2022, despite the fact that gold was flat and silver was positive. The GDX was down 10.5%, I think, on the year. And the GDXJ was down about eight and a half. I'm not counting the dividends. So I think the returns, if you factor in the dividends, were not as bad. But if you compare the losses in the mining stocks to the NASDAQ, where the NASDAQ was down triple what you saw in the gold stocks, and the gold stocks at one point along the way were down a lot more than the NASDAQ. And we had a huge rally. In fact, all these gold stocks are now in bull markets. They're all more than 20% off their lows. I mean, some of these gold stocks have doubled off their lows, the ones that have made the biggest move, but you see a lot of them that are up 40, 50% or more. So this really is a stealth bull market in the gold stocks, and no one is talking about that. But also, we saw the shift from momentum to value and dividends. Probably nowhere is that more obvious than if you look at the performance of my own mutual fund, the Euro-Pacific Dividend Payer Fund and the Euro-Pacific Value Fund. If you look up on Morningstar, my Dividend Payer Fund had a positive return in 2022 of 1.2%. Now, that's not a huge return, but it's a lot better than losing 18%, which is what the S&P did, or 33%, which is what the NASDAQ did. And the only reason that that fund was only up 1.2% and not 11 or 12% was because of the strength of the US dollar. Now, the dollar gave up a lot of its strength towards the end of the year. The dollar sold off about 10% from its peak in November, but it was still up about that amount. And that was a big headwind for this fund because the fund is all in foreign stocks. And so the stocks were up, but the dollar strength caused the dollar price of the fund to lose a lot of those gains. Now, I expect that situation to reverse in 2023. I expect the dollar weakness to provide an even bigger tailwind for this fund than the headwind that it provided in 2022, although today was not an indication of that because even though gold was up, so was the dollar. In fact, the dollar index was up about 1% on the day. So it was a very strong day, but significantly, the index is still holding below 105. And so I don't think today's up move is going to set the tone for the rest of the year. I think the dollar is still in a downtrend and gold is in an uptrend. But the return on my dividend payer fund, even though it was only 1.2%, that was enough to have it in the top 1% of all 349 funds tracked by Morningstar in its category. Now, I don't know if it was the number one fund. It might have been. Because when I look on Morningstar, it just tells you the top 1%. And that's basically three funds. So my fund could be number one, but maybe it's number two or number three. But just being in the top 1% is a phenomenal relative return. In fact, I just read an article online from U.S. News & World Report, their money section, ranking the top 90 large cap foreign value funds 
in the country for 2022. And number one on the list is the Euro-Pacific International Dividend Payers Fund. So in this case, we are number one. The value fund still made the top 10, but it was down at number nine. Now, the reason the fund did so well on a relative basis is because my portfolio avoided the most overpriced sectors. We were way underweight technology. We were way underweight financials. And we were overweight the type of value dividend-oriented stocks that money was flowing into. So we didn't have the stocks that people were selling. We had the stocks that people were buying. Now, that portfolio worked against us in the earlier years of the bubble. But not only did it work very well in 2022, but it's also worked well over the last two years, three years, and five years. The problem was in the preceding five years, but the real turn happened five years ago. It's just been slow in the making, but I think now we're going to start to accelerate the differences between that type of value-oriented stock-picking strategy versus momentum-chasing following the herd. Now, my value fund was almost as good. The return there was up just under a half a percent, and that ranked it in the top 2% of the same category. Both of those funds end up in the same category. Both funds did extremely well on a relative basis. On an absolute basis, obviously, the returns are low. But I think what's significant about the relative performance is that I think it's the beginning of a huge trend. And I think the absolute performance is going to emerge in 2023 and beyond. Now, there's no guarantee of that, but that's how I see things evolving as the dollar finally drops. Because I think not only did the strong dollar hurt the funds directly because of the currency translation, but I think the strong dollar kept a lot of money from flowing into these foreign stocks. And I think in an environment where people are looking to get rid of dollar-denominated assets, that's going to cause a lot more flows into these markets. And I think that's going to really push up foreign stock prices, particularly when it comes to emerging markets, which had an even worse year in 2022. But they really recovered strong in the latter part of 2022. And I think they're off to a good start. In fact, the global markets were up strongly. Those few that were trading on January 2nd. And then on January 3rd, when more markets opened, they were up again. It was the U.S. market that kind of dragged everybody down. The U.S. market opened up on the back of overseas strength. And then it rolled over and went negative based on domestic weakness. And so again, I think that is setting the tone for the way I believe the year is going to play out. I think foreign markets will be strong as the dollar is weak, but I think U.S. markets will continue to be weak. And I think all those people who are hoping for a rebound, whether it's in tech stocks or in cryptocurrencies, are going to be solidly disappointed. But more importantly, by holding on to those stocks or crypto and hoping that they recover, they're missing out on an opportunity. They can cut and run. They can take their losses or to the extent they still have gains, they could take those and they could take the money and invest it someplace else. And rather than going down with a ship, they could abandon ship and get on a more seaworthy vessel and actually make money in 2023 instead of losing it. Clearly, when Bitcoin investors, aka Fool's Gold, abandon a sinking crypto ship, the obvious alternative is to board actual gold, buying some gold or buying some silver 
there's still plenty of time to make that trade because there's a lot of downside in Bitcoin to avoid, yet there's still a lot of upside in gold and silver to participate in. And I know a lot of the crypto guys, they want to take custody, not your keys, not your crypto. They want to own it. So take physical delivery of your gold and silver. Nothing is safer than having gold and silver in your own custody. And you can get that at Shift Gold. Go to shiftgold.com and you can take physical delivery. So if you don't want to trust any third parties, you just buy gold. You'll know it's real gold and silver because you're getting it from Shift Gold and you're going to be buying coins and bars from reputable myths. And you can rest assured that if it says an ounce of gold on the coin or the bar, you are getting one ounce of gold. And you'll always know what an ounce of gold is worth. It's worth the same every place in the world. There's always a price in every currency. So that's an obvious alternative to Bitcoin. Don't settle for a cheap imitation of gold. Buy the real thing. But if you really want some big upside potential, if you want to go to the moon, you're not going to go there with physical gold and silver. I think you're going to leave Earth. You're going to get into orbit, maybe. But if you want sky high returns, then you got to take on more risk. And that's why I like the gold and silver mining sector. So if you want to play for a big move in gold, but you want to profit even more, then the mining stocks is where you should be. I think the risk reward profile in the mining stocks is much better than in Bitcoin. I think the upside potential is far greater. I don't even think Bitcoin can double from here. In fact, I doubt Bitcoin is getting back above 20,000. That's how low the upside potential is for Bitcoin. Whereas I think gold mining stocks, especially the junior mining stocks, could 10x or 20x or more. So you've got lots of upside. Now, could junior mining stocks go to zero? I doubt it. They could certainly get close. They could go down 70, 80%. I doubt they're going down 100%. Now, some individual junior mining companies will go down 100% because they'll go bankrupt. But if you have a diversified portfolio, they're not all going bankrupt. But Bitcoin can go down 100%. And so you have more downside in Bitcoin, but I think realistically, a lot less upside potential. And I think the odds of that kind of catastrophic drop in gold stocks, even the juniors from here, is very slim. Because unlike the S&P 500, gold stocks are cheap. They're cheap on a historic basis. They're cheap relative to the price of gold and silver. So these are good buys based on any historic metric that you want to look at. But what history is not taking into account is the massive amount of inflation that we have right now and how much more inflation the world is about to experience. So I think that given the historic high amount of inflation that we have and that we will have and how historically cheap gold stocks happen to be, even in the face of that inflation, that is the tremendous opportunity. Because given all this inflation, gold stocks shouldn't be this cheap. They should already be expensive pricing this in. But that is the opportunity. The market is not pricing this correctly because most participants don't get how much worse inflation is going to be. They just assume that the Fed is going to put this genie right back in the bottle and there's nothing to worry about. Well, I think in 2023, people are going to change their outlook and adopt a more realistic assessment of the future course of inflation. And now they're going to have to completely reprice gold. And that means an even bigger revaluation 
of the gold and silver mining stocks. So if you want to get involved in those, you could pretty much buy any gold stock, any senior producer, and I think you're going to do well. But I think if you want to get into some of these juniors, these exploration companies, the best thing to do is hire a professional manager to pick these stocks for you because the chances are you could end up picking some real dogs and there's nothing that's going to frustrate you more than watching the price of gold go way up, gold stocks go up, but then the gold stocks that you happen to buy went down because you bought the wrong ones. And I think you'll minimize your chances of that happening if you diversify with a professional money manager and the guy that I hired to manage my gold fund and all of our separately managed accounts that are concentrated in mining stocks is Adrian Day. And I picked Adrian because I think he's got the best track record in the business. In fact, he's been in the business pretty much longer than anybody else who's still in the business. I think Adrian has forgotten more about gold and silver mining stocks than most other managers know. So that's why I hired him. And I think you should hire him too by getting into my fund. You could either do that by working with the brokers at Europe Pacific Asset Management, or you could buy my funds at Schwab or Fidelity or any of the major discount brokerage houses. All of my mutual funds are on those platforms. So you can buy the funds or you can work with our representatives and we can buy them. In fact, we have wrap accounts. I have my value fund that I spoke about, the dividend payer fund. I also have an emerging market fund. And as I mentioned, I am extremely bullish on those emerging markets. Not only are they cheap, but they are historically cheap in relation to the U.S. market. And I've even got a bond fund. My bond fund was down last year. The total return was minus 7.34%. So it did a lot better than U.S. bonds. And in fact, the only reason my bond fund was down was because the dollar was up, because all of these losses were foreign exchange related. They weren't really bond related. In fact, my performance was good enough to put me in the top 12% of the 201 funds tracked by Morningstar. But I think that bond fund is going to have a positive return, maybe even a double-digit positive return in 2023 if I'm right about the dollar falling. Because if the dollar really drops, especially against some of these emerging market currencies, because we have quite a bit of emerging market debt in that bond fund, I think my bond fund could end up being the top performing bond fund of 2023. And in fact, I think all U.S. bond funds are going to have another bad year as bond prices continue to fall as inflation doesn't return to 2%, but stays stubbornly high or moves higher. So you can buy that fund as well through the discount brokers, or you can work with the reps at Euro-Pacific Asset Management. And again, if you want to get into my strategies, I also have the dividend payer strategy and the value strategy in separately managed accounts. So instead of buying into a mutual fund where your money is commingled with all the other shareholders of the fund, you can have your own separately managed account, your own portfolio that basically has the same allocation of stocks, except it's in an individual brokerage account that we manage for a fee instead of being in a mutual fund. Now to open up an account like that, you have to contact the representatives at your Pacific Capital, Euro Pacific Asset Management, just go to Europac.com to get information on how to do that. But I would get these accounts set up as soon as possible, as early in the year. If you're not already one of my clients, if you've been listening to the podcast, but you're not currently working with us, I think this would be an excellent time to do it. 
it seems the pendulum is clearly swinging in the direction of our strategies. And so before it moves much further, climb aboard. And of course, if you're already working with us, it's a good time to be adding funds to the account. I think the outperformance of the last several years is just getting started. I think there's still tremendous downside risk in U.S. dollar-denominated assets, not just the U.S. dollar, but U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds. On the other side of the spectrum, I think there's a lot of upside potential relative to the downside risk in foreign stocks, particularly if you are very selective in the foreign stocks that you buy. You avoid the momentum-type stocks and concentrate on value, dividend-oriented stocks, but also focus on emerging markets, on resources. Those are commodities-type stocks in agriculture, metals, both industrial and precious, energy, oil and gas, alternative energy. There are a lot of sectors that people were ignoring during the bubble years. Well, as the air is coming out of that bubble, money is returning to the types of investments that it left in order to participate in that bubble. And so that's where we've been investing for years. I've been anticipating the bursting of this bubble. The bubble has finally burst, but there's still a lot of air left to come out. Most people remain in denial. The people who rode the bubble have no idea what they were riding. They assumed that they were smart. They still don't realize that they got lucky. Well, they've pressed their luck. They've stayed too long at the party. They are not going to make the rotation in time. But I think the people who have been listening to my podcast, who have already taken these steps and who can continue to take these steps, there's still plenty of time to reallocate your portfolio to protect yourself, again, not just from ongoing bear markets in stocks and bonds, but from the inflation tax, which is going to eviscerate most people's investment portfolios far beyond the nominal losses. Because what really counts is not the dollar price of your portfolio, but what those dollars are worth when you go to cash out your stocks and spend your money.